If you have a Bible, I want to welcome you to grab one. We're going to be in Mark's Gospel, chapter 16. We are concluding our studies on the Gospel of Mark. And uh, in an odd way, I will, I will preface it in a very unusual way. Uh, but before I do that, well, why don't we go ahead and do that? Uh, Mark chapter 1, I guess before I do that, I've got to put my spectacles on because I cannot see. Uh, Mark chapter 1, we're going to pick it up in verse number 1 and end with verse number 8 and we'll be done with the gospel of Mark. And I'll explain all of that because I'm sure some of you are already thinking, wait a minute, we already did this, this sermon and there's more verses. Verse number 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the next, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled to the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to no one. And look at these last four words, and I want us to focus our time on them this morning. For they were afraid. For they were afraid. Uh, one more time before we get into this, you can pray for me as I will pray for you as we pray over the reading of God's word and the remainder of our time together. So Lord, God, here we are today. We ask that you would help us uh, as we decipher through the things that were just said and spoken over us through your word. God, may your word be a lamp into our feet, a light into our path, and let it, let it sharpen us and, and help our minds to understand, hearts to receive, eyes to see, hands and feet to go and be activated for your kingdom's sake, for Christ's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as I said, we are at the end of the Gospel of Mark in our series. We began this series April 23rd, 2022, with a couple of interruptions along the way. Today will be the 58th sermon out of this series. And if so, we were to uh, divide this out uh, we have done an average of 11.6 verses every Sunday when we were in this series. Now, there are over 23,145 verses in the Bible. If I were to take it at that pace, 11, say 11 verses for every Sunday, we would have gone through the entire book of the Bible by the time I would be 79 years old. So you better buckle up because we got some work to do. And uh, I have no idea why I gave you those statistics, only just because it makes me feel like such a nerd and I love it. Some of you are, let me address this because some of you are saying, and we said, and we already asked this question, well, why are we going through this 
This again, because we just went through these verses last week, and we did, but I'm purposely going back to them. And and if you look at verse number eight, uh, and I'll point this out in just a moment why we're going back to this. If you look at verse number eight, and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were what again? Afraid. I imagine some of us have read books or you've watched a movie that had uh, what we could say an abrupt or an odd or a very weird ending and you said to yourself when you concluded if you were reading the book you turned the pages and you're like oh that 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 that's it or you watched the movie uh, and and you were watching it and it said the end, I don't know if they still say the end anymore, they used to, or they, it just cuts black screen and you're like, wait, wait a minute, Our, this cannot be it. This cannot be the way that this movie or this book or whatever ends. Now, I would suggest to you, if you, if you still have your Bible, that, that Mark's gospel in chapter 16, verse number 8 ends in such a way that it leaves us thinking, wait a minute, this particular chapter, this book, this gospel, cannot, it cannot end with the four words, for they were afraid. Now, if you have a study Bible, uh, it, it may tell you that right after in between Sandwiched in between verses number eight and nine, it says that early manuscripts do not have verses 16 through number 20. So presumably then, verse number 16 through 20 serves as some type of appendix or some type of postscript that was placed at the end of Mark's gospel because when people read this, they likely had this question, all right? And there was the question. This book cannot end in this way. Oh, why can this book not end in this way? Because this presents to us a very, very odd ending that they went out and they were afraid. Now, it's important for me to address a couple of things uh, by way of explanation. So, so you're going to have to hang with me for just a little bit. Uh, we'll count that as an inter- introduction, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Our, our elder, our pastors, this church, if you go through our essentials, which will be starting back up pretty soon, and for the Orthodox or for the history of Christianity has affirmed, affirmed an essential core doctrinal belief that I believe would would kind of separate us from other religions, that the Bible, its absolute authority as the word of God, that the Bible is God's speech in written form, that what the Bible says, God says. And that's a fancy way of saying that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. The Bible is completely true in what it says to us, and it makes no claims that are not true. That is the orthodox view. That is the view of uh, evangelical view. It's the view of this church of scripture that we understand 
that everything that we do, how we view life, how we view all manners, goes through a lens of the Bible so that the Bible then, it dictates, it, 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 it moves us. It, it is the way in which we think about cultural issues, about how we are to even to live our own life. Why? Because the Bible is the authoritative word of God. We also have to wrestle with this idea of dual authorship when it comes to the Bible. Now, I told you to hang with me. You're going to have to hang with me before we get back to this text. But I've got to address this, right? Because, because if I see in the scripture that it is the authority in how I live my life, and all of a sudden I see some type of, of sentence sandwiched in between two verses that says, some earlier manuscripts don't include this, then I've got to leave, that leaves my mind at least, I don't know if it leaves your mind wondering, but it leaves my mind wondering with the question of then, can I trust the whole word of God as truth? Can I trust the word of God as truth? And the answer for me and, and for my search and my study is that yes, and this is not going to remove from that part of the equation. So the Bible has dual authorship, Right? It's God-breathed. It's God's way of communicating to the world by human means and methods. Okay? So God spoke, if you particularly in the Old Testament, God speaks through his men. God speaks through a people. They listen. They write it down. Same thing happens in the New Testament. It's why, um, it's, it's why we see, and we, we have another one of these uh, that comes into question in John chapter 7, right? It's at the end of John chapter 7, bleeds into John chapter 8. You see another uh, little disclaimer that says some earlier transcripts do not include this story. So we affirm that the absolute authority and inerrancy of Scripture. And we also have to take to, uh, to, at face value that the early church regarded the Old Testament. And the early church regarded the apostles' works in which we would call the New Testament as authority and as the authoritative word of God, you can look at 2 Peter uh, chapter 9, verse 15 through 16, when Paul, or, or when Peter talks about how did you not listen to Paul's words? And he's saying this as in an authoritative manner, like, like listen to what he's been writing. Pay attention to what he's been writing to you. It's truth. It's authority. It's what's guiding us as a whole church. And so we affirm, yes, that the Bible is the authoritative word of God. Now, if that's, and again, you have to wrestle with this, right? You have to look at this, and that question has to come to your mind. And then the other thing, the second part, is we take seriously the observation that is here that older manuscripts of Mark's gospel do not contain verses 9 through 20. Now, for a lot of church history, it did include this, Okay? Again, you, you got to hang with me here for just a moment. But for the most part of the church, because of technology, because of discovering more transcripts, we have guys that go through this process, and I'm not going to bore you with it, or maybe I will, called textual criticism, okay? 
And so they conclude that since that earlier manuscripts didn't have this, then it was likely not a part of the original uh, gospel letter that was circulating although all all throughout of Rome. One writer says this about textual criticism. I hope you feel so much more smarter and more, more understanding of the Bible. You know what I'm saying? You just so feel so enriched with all this history here. Textual criticism. This is what he says about textual criticism. is the discipline of examining all the manuscripts we do have and working back from those the best approximation we can make manage to the wording of the original manuscripts. Listen to what he says right here. No Christian doctrine depends on those parts where there are residual uncertainties, i.e. Mark 16, 9 through 20, and the other one I referenced from John chapter 7. In other words, nothing about the Christian faith, nothing about our understanding of Jesus is based upon whether we think this section is authentic or not. There's nothing introduced here or in John's gospel that doesn't introduce a new type of doctrine that causes us to think, well, wait a minute, this doesn't align well with other scriptures. In fact, what we believe and what most scholars will believe about this particular passage is that since this may have been an abrupt and odd ending, they took from Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, and created this sort of appendix to Mark's gospel, That made it flow and end better for the reader. Now, if you read verses 16 through 20, you will find that nothing in it is new doctrine. Nothing in it is is sort of this question to us like, oh, how in the world does this, this kind of fit into the Christian faith? It's none of that. It's not. Now, I I did all of that for you, all of that survey for you, because one, I I just, I I, I get nerded out about this kind of stuff. And two, that's so you can wrestle and we can wrestle and we can dive into those four words. Why this sudden, odd, weird ending? And they left afraid. And we've got to determine why is this? Why would Mark end his gospel in a way of exposing us to the glorious reality of the resurrection and then suddenly dramatically ended with they left and they were afraid? Now we can have suggestions as to why. I'm not going to belabor. Well, maybe I will. And some suggestions that have been brought up over time have been, well, maybe Mark went out for a drink and he never came back and he was going to write chapter uh, or, or, or scene or act two, which would have been something similar that Dr. Luke did with his biography of the gospel and then wrote Acts. And I don't know why he did it. And in fact, I don't care. What I do believe is that I would suggest that Mark was very intentional about abruptly ending his gospel with this word, and they were afraid. And they were afraid. And and here's why I think Mark just suddenly, dramatically, just 
drops the ball on everyone, drops the mic, and they were afraid and stops writing. Because if you've looked and if you've noticed through, and I would suggest that I think I'm the only person, uh, maybe with the exception of one or two, that has heard all 58 of these sermons. Anyone can say that they've heard all 58 of these sermons? Kim. Thanks, Kim. My favorite. My favorite. Yeah. All right, Kim. Yay. Got some disgruntled. Yay, Kim, for you. Anyway, that's enough. Listen, here's what I've come to conclude. Mark has a pace about him, right? There's like this newspaper feeling. I've said this so many times throughout this gospel where Mark just like, just bam, bam. He tells you a story and then he goes right into the next. And immediately, immediately, immediately. Like if you, go, if you still have your Bible open, like look at chapter one in verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark doesn't use any of the type of language or methods that Matthew uses or that, or that Luke uses about the narrative of his birth and, and the genealogy of Jesus and getting into kind of the, the minutia and the details of the birth and how Christ came to us. Nor does he uh, either go into the details like John does about the, the reality of for all eternity, Christ has been here. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Okay? Mark doesn't do that. He goes at such a pace where we pick it up right here at the ministry of Jesus. Like, like look at chapter 1, for example, in verse number 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, notice the Word. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. Skip to verse number 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out in the wilderness. Verse number 21, and went to Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. You get the picture? It goes at a fast, fast pace. He doesn't necessarily get into discourses with the exception of chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse, about some kind of eschatological view of what's about to happen in the near future and the future beyond. Mark spends his time at this rapid pace that immediately this happened. And he does this. And this is why we can think that this chapter ends in verse 8. And they left in fear because we have noticed that there is a pace about this gospel that Mark just jumps, jumps. Jesus dies. Jesus is crucified. He's dead and he's resurrected. They see the resurrection of Jesus and they left immediately because they were afraid. So we have a pace that can kind of give us the conclusion why Mark wants to leave his audience with this idea that they left afraid. We also see that there's the pattern of Mark's gospel. And the pattern that which I am referring to is the fear factor. Fear has been a remarkable, remarkable subject within the context of the pattern of Mark's Gospel. You can find it on your own, but I'll, I'll, I'll point out a couple of them. In chapter 4, Jesus calming the storm. You remember that story? Let's go over to the other side. The waves break the boat, and everybody's like freaking out, and Jesus rebukes the winds. They wake him up. He rebukes the winds, and he says, peace be still. And he's like, why were you guys so afraid? What is wrong with you? Do you not have faith? And the word of God says that the disciples gathered together and they began to sing worship and praise music and they danced abruptly and they couldn't. They got out their banners. Man, they were like getting full on Pentecostal and everybody. 
No, that's not what the Bible says. After Jesus asked them a couple questions, what does the Bible say? They were terrified. They were afraid. <laughs> and and we, we've already gone through why they were afraid. They were afraid at, that they were standing in the presence of the creator God of the universe. Because Jewish tradition was that the one, Bible tradition was that there would be a one who walks on the waters and calms the storms. You, I'll, give you, I'll give you one more. I could give you more, but I ain't because we're running out of time. Chapter 5, verse 14, and the people came to see what had happened. That's because if you remember the demoniac dude and uh, Jesus, Jesus rebukes the legion, the demons, and they go flee out uh, into the herd of pigs, which leads to a question. Why are these Jewish people at this particular time, why, why are they raising pigs? They ain't supposed to be eating bacon. You know what I'm saying? And so anyway, and so the, the pigs, they, they go off into the shore. They all die. And the people are just astonished. And what? Afraid. The people were afraid. Do you see this theme throughout scripture? I could give you more of this, but I want you to see, not that the pace of this can, can vilify why Mark ends in such a way, but also the pattern of fear that we find ourselves in. There's a pattern of fear. And also, we have to look at the purpose of the gospel of Mark. What is the purpose of the gospel of Mark? What have we been saying for one and a half years? It is to reveal to us who is Jesus and why he came. And Mark does that. Reveals to us who Jesus is. He's the risen son of God. And he ends it right there with them being utterly terrified these ladies were not expecting a resurrection and, and you think and, and you think he knows exactly why he's ending it in this such a way because these women they did not expect Jesus to be risen from the grave they were afraid and they were terrified now all of that okay thanks for hanging with me uh, or at least most of you uh, they were all afraid and, and I want to just kind of focus on this, all of that by way of saying they were all afraid is also something that we all have to kind of come to grasp our minds around. Fear. They were afraid. Fear. Let's look at fear for just a moment. If you think about the doctrine of fear anywhere in the Bible, and, and particularly in the context of Mark, since that's where we are, you see and you start to begin to realize why ending a book of the Bible in fear is such an incredible way to end a book. I want you to bring your mind around the power and the sovereignty of God, okay? So, so when we look at a biblical fear, a doctrine of fear, what we have to do is think through the doctrine of the power of God. That one day we'll be standing in the presence of God who created time, who spoke a word in time and matter and particles and light and energy and life came into being. That God is the one who holds all things together by the power of his will. Physics do not hold all things together. 
the word of God hold things all together. At least that's what we get from the Bible as the truth, as the authority. You think back in Colossians that in Christ, all things were made for him and by him. In other words, that Jesus Christ is the acting agent of creation in all things, light, energy, particles. Insert all of the science you want to. It doesn't stand on its own, but by and because of the power of God, those things are being held together. Now, now when, I, when I think about that, and when I'm standing face to the reality of the God who holds all things together, now if I'm a believer or if I'm not a believer, that is going to, and you have to understand this, that is going to set inside of all of us this tension of fear. That there is a God in the heavens that by his spoken word holds my life together. All right? And I don't know about you, but what that does inside of me, what that ought to do inside of all of us is cause our hearts, our souls, our spirits to tremble. It's, it's, like, it's like going to the Grand Canyon. You stand on the edge. And you realize one major gust of wind can cause your skinny self to go flying off of a mild cliff. What does that do for you? First of all, what that is called is majesty. That it is so glorious, so marvelous, that one wrong move, some stupid moron comes up and shoves you. You are done. All right? Well, I can survive a one mile fall. No, you can't, honey. You is dead. In fact, they're they, they going to have to do a closed casket. You is dead. Okay? That's the fear that I think many of us have been missing in our walk with the Lord. Oh, but God's my homeboy. Like, we are bros, man. Like, he is my bro. And, and you know, we have this, this idea of, well, God is just, you know, like, he's there. He's going to care. He's going to do all these things. He's my bellhop. Anything I ask, I can have. He's my genie in the bottle. And we have forsaken this reality that what I would press, what Mark is presenting back to us is this doctrine of all reverential fear. Now, now when I think back, and, I, and I, man, that was a long tangent. When I think back about the power of God, I think about his imminence and I think about his transcendence. Now, those are two big words, but I'll, I'll, I'll clear those up really quickly for you. Think about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer presents to us our Father where? In heaven. Y'all, all y'all went King James Version on me. Uh, who art in heaven. And so, and so you have this reality, right? That our Father is imminent. What is imminence? He's our Father. He's near. He's, he, is, he is interwoven in the affairs of of your life, right? So when we think about who God is, we think about, yes, how powerful, how one thing, like God's holding all these things by the word of his mouth, but also that we have a father in heaven that is, that is he is in the minutia. I don't know why I keep saying that word today, but he is in the details of 
your life. Isn't that wonderful? Now, for some, it's terrifying. But for others, when we embrace this reality, I have a father who loves me. He cares if I get the job or not. He, he cares uh, about my kids. He cares about my family. He cares that I'm going through suffering. He cares that I am walking on a high mountain. He cares if I'm in a low valley in a pit of despair. God is imminent. He is our father and he is interwoven in the affairs of all of our lives. So that's imminence, but he's also our father in heaven, meaning he is transcendent. Uh, scholars would call this omnipresent, that not only, think about this, and this makes my head explode, that not only is God involved in your specific details of your life, he's listening into your prayers. He hears his saints when they cry. He is involved in your suffering. He is right there in it. But he is also in the center of Orion's belt at this nebulous star, while he's also simultaneously in our sun, in our galaxy, in every corner of the cosmos, he's transcendent. He's at all times, at all places. And if that doesn't make your head explode, then, then maybe I need to get on your level of scholarship. Because for me, like, that is, what kind of a God that would be involved in my life also be in the involvement of, of nations, of our globe, of our earth, making sure that it is on the right, see the light came on for some of you, making sure that it is on its right axis and so that nothing can come against our earth. And so, and he is out there in the affairs of the cosmos. He's transcendent. And what that does is that presents to all of us this reality of fear. In fact, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, the word of God says that when Christ returned, when the angels gather the elect, what happens? People are mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, fearful, afraid. Why are they afraid? Because they realize there's no more time to repent. And then for those who are gathered up, God's elect, God's chosen People, what's the reality for them? Fear, but it's not terror for us. It is awe and reverential fear. It's no wonder then that Mark concludes his gospel with this reality of they see the risen Christ, they hear that he is resurrected, and they left and they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Because you got to understand, they knew the eminence of Jesus. They were presently with him for maybe three and a half years. They were with Christ. They were intimately involved in him. They ate with Jesus. They talked to Jesus. They felt Jesus. They saw Jesus. But then the resurrection presented to them a reality of not just his eminence, but his transcendence. They left with fear, not because they knew Jesus in an intimate and in, in his imminence, but they left with fear because they realized that Jesus Christ is God and he is the one who is the transcendent one, 
who is the one that conquered death, who is the one who resurrected from the grave. Who can be one that resurrects from the grave? Only that of a God-man, Jesus Christ. Mark is absolutely correct in his ending of his gospel. And they left and they were afraid. And they were afraid because they now saw Jesus in all of his transcendent glory. And it left them with reverential fear that Jesus is the one who is God. I'm going to throw this thing out the toilet. Don't shut up. The watch, that is. I don't know if you heard it. It kept talking to me. It's weird. And it leaves all of us with that same question. You've been listening to Mark's gospel. You've been hearing me yell at you. You've been hearing me say to you, look to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. And I got to be honest with you. I know that there are still some of you in this room who have not looked to Jesus with the fear that leads you to an awestruck wonder of who he is. I mean, you, you come to church, you play the games, you be a good person, and you feel like that's been enough for you. My friend, that is not enough. One day we will all behold him and we will all see him face to face and you in, in seeing him face to face will either bring you terror or it will bring you into fear that leads to reverence and awe of the transcendent, imminent, holy and living Jesus Christ. It was why John Newton the author of Amazing Grace, who was once a blasphemous slave-trading captain of ships, discovered God. And what does he write? What does he write? He writes, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. And there that grace, my fears, relieved it led him to say, you are God. You are risen. I am weak. You are strong. That's the gospel of Mark. We're done. And it is an odd ending. It's a, an abrupt ending. And its ending leaves us with the question mark. Since Jesus is king, have I come to have fear that leads to reverence? towards the holy and living God? And that is the question that I leave you with, with this gospel.